What are you looking at? Usually those are fighting words, depending on where you're at and who you ask them. What are you looking at? But that kind of idea, that kind of searching, is at the heart of this third Rejoice Week of Advent. And I'd like to start just by asking the question internally about what is joy? What is joy? It's really not from having a feeling of fulfillment or, or of something that we have. Uh, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness comes and goes. Joy is more deep, is more profound, more lasting. And in that, we come to understand that joy ultimately comes from God. Can't come from any place else. True joy comes from God. And so we get an insight into that this weekend with this character, John the Baptist. And so remember, as you heard in the, in the reading here, by this point in time, John's in prison. And so uh, he's got his peeps coming to visit him, and he says, um, you know, why don't you go ask him? Are you the guy? Are you the guy, or should we look for somebody else? Now, that really is kind of a crazy thing when you think about it, because John baptized Jesus. And so what was up that John was kind of unsure about this while he was in prison? Are you the guy? Well, part of it was is that John the Baptist, like a lot of others in his day, thought that the Messiah that was coming, he had a different vision of what the Messiah was. So this idea of the Messiah was an earthly like king, someone who was powerful, and by God, they were going to come in and they were going to take care of all the opposition and they were going to make things right. And, of course, Jesus didn't do that. Some people today think that God should operate the same way. So John the Baptist had this vision of the Messiah as one of punishment, one of judgment, one of vindication. But, surprise, Jesus didn't bring that. Think about it for a minute. John the Baptist didn't rescue or Jesus didn't rescue John the Baptist from death row. None of the miracles that Jesus performed helped John the Baptist. But in the final analysis, he still believed. And so, what about that? Well, in a sense, you and I probably ask that question at different times in our lives when challenging things happen. Are you the guy? Is there really something to this, or do we need to look to someplace else? And so Jesus' response then to John the Baptist wasn't, yeah, I'm the guy. What did he say? He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. The proof was in the pudding. None of those things are the things that they thought a Messiah was going to do. And maybe you and I need to rethink our idea of what the Messiah is too. Because we look to Jesus' life, not to what our opinion is or what our preconceived construct is about who Jesus should be, but what did he come to do? And so as the disciples went off to tell uh, uh, John the Baptist what Jesus said, he started to talk to the crowd. And it says, as they were going off, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. And then he says, what did you expect? What did you go out to see? 
And then he gave three, he asked the question three times, which is kind of interesting. Three has an important meaning in the scriptures. So first he said, what did you expect? What did you go out to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What does that mean? Did you go out to see somebody who's always going to bow to popular opinion and anything that kind of comes along, they're pretty resilient and they'll just kind of go with the flow? He asked the question a second time. Then what did you go out to see? Somebody dressed in fine clothing? Pomp and circumstance? Wealth and glitz? Well, that sure wasn't Jesus. Then he asked again. What did you go out to see, a prophet? Now, first of all, let's do a little quiz this morning. What's a prophet? When you were baptized, you were baptized as priest, prophet, and king. So what, what does it mean to be a prophet? Generally, it means somebody who is pointing to something that isn't yet. Isn't yet, okay? And so Jesus said, would you go to see a prophet? Yes, but more than that, more than a prophet. He said, yes, I tell you, this is the one of whom it's written. I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he's going to prepare a way for you. So what did this prophet do? Did he come and change the politics of the day? Did he come and put a different president in or something like that? No, what did he do? He did things like this. He restored sight. He made legs work. He made people hear. He raised people from the dead. He gave life to those who had died, and he also was someone who preached the good news to the poor. In fact, next to the words, the phrase, be not afraid, which is what Jesus said the most in the New Testament, the second thing that was the most consistent is he never, ever, ever wanted people to forget that the poor have a primary place. And the poor will have the good news preached to them. This was a lot more than they bargained for. Actually, a, a different political regime would have been easier. But he came for one thing. He came to restore. Think about any of the miracles that Jesus did. It was about restoration. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's any one of us who doesn't have some part of their life that needs some restoration. Restoration means putting back together or making whole again. That's why Jesus came. He got such a bad rap. People think, oh, Jesus is going to send you to hell. No, he came back to restore us. And sometimes that's harder for us to accept. We'd like a good beating rather than be forgiven. It's easier on our pride. I deserved it. But he's about restoration. And that restoration begins with the poor. And the poor will have the good news preached to them. So what about the poor? If we call ourselves followers of Jesus and the poor need to have a central place, well, there's several ways to look at that. One is the hungry poor. And so the hungry poor, we can kind of understand a little bit. I think I mentioned to you a couple months ago that the United States has an astonishing percentage of children who are what we call food insecure. It means kids who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. So I don't, I don't remember the statistic exactly, but it was like 16 or 18 percent of kids in the United States. We're not talking about Africa. We're talking about our own country where we throw more food away. There's also the lonely 
poor. We live in a day and age that we have more ways to communicate than at any point in time in human history, and we have more lonely people than ever. Terribly lonely people. Sometimes they're right in our own town. I mean, go to the nursing homes. Kills me when I talk to people and you say, oh, you know, and I think that they got relatives in town or something, and the, and the the people in the nursing home wind up making excuses. Well, you know, they're really busy and they have dance and, and they've got games and stuff and I want to cry. The lonely poor. What about the homeless poor? Yes, there are people who have no roof over their head, no shelter, but there are also those who have no place where they feel safe. No place where they're accepted, no matter what. No place where they're secure. The homeless poor. And then there's the empty poor. <clears throat> and these people just ain't got nothing. No friends, no money, no food, no place to stay. They're probably some of the people that are under bridges in some of our larger communities, but are lurking around in our area as well. They just ain't got nothing. No connections. That's who Jesus came for. That's who Jesus came to restore. That's who he wants us to be restoring. We're the fat and sassy middle class. We have more than most. But one thing we have in common with even the poorest of the poor is we deeply want to be restored. We can fool everybody else. We can fool our spouse. We can fool the people that we work with. We can fool our friends. When, when you look at these two eyes in the mirror in the morning, you can't fool them. There's a hole in the bottom of this that nothing is ever going to fill. I don't care how, how, much you, how much more work you do, how much more money you have, how many more friends you have, how many more distractions, how many more toys you got in the shed, it will never, ever give you joy. Ever. So as we celebrate Rejoice Weekend, I want you to think about what are you really looking for? What do you desire the most. I suspect that for most of us, it has to do with relationships that are a mess. If you don't know any relationship that you're at odds with, that you haven't been talking to, something happened, you may have good reason to be mad, but needs to be restored. Now, one of the ways we do that is obviously through a confession, through reconciliation, but it's not the only way. So what is your poverty? What, where are the blind spots in your life? In what ways are you lame? You're weak in some areas, and you need to be strengthened. What's leprous in you? How is your hearing impaired? And I'm talking about selective deafness here. This is what Christ coming into the world is for. It's not about judgment. It's not about glitz. It's not about pomp and circumstance. It's about restoration, making whole again. And I think that the road to joy comes from us facing and admitting what we need to be restored in our lives. 
Jesus was the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh. Our problems come from flesh, from our relationships, from the ways that we are violent with each other. The last two weeks I've said to you, the gospel demands a response. Now you can just head out of here today on Pink Sunday and go back to your life as regular and not make any changes and it will just go But the gospel demands a response. Can you rejoice? Will you rejoice? It begins with being willing to be restored.